Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, which is again on Zoom. So it's still sponsored and sort of an offshoot of the Mizrahi Bet Midrash, but is now in cyberspace. And we are on uh, Pasuk Kaf Gimel. Perak Yud Zion, Pasuk Gimel, the story of the Brit Benavatarim, and we're just coming really to the tail end of the Brit Benavatarim, when Avraham actually performs the Brit on himself and on his household. And if we, we did the first part, the major part of the Rashi on Kaf Gimel, there's a little bit uh, left to do, which is of a grammatical nature. And Pasuk Kaf Gimel of Perak Yud Zion says as follows, Abraham took Yishmael and he, all the uh, children of his household and all the uh, acquisitions of money, all males, but Anshay Beit Abraham in the house and the men of the household of Abraham, Okay. Okay, I'm going to ask everyone to mute themselves until they uh, have something to say, uh, so we don't disturb each other. And Rashi has something to say on the word Vayamal, and he says, Loshon Vayifal. In other words, he is giving us grammar. It is a kal in the male singular future, and then turned into the past by the vav, and although one would normally expect a different vowelism, because the root of mol is mem vov lamud, it's an ayin vov word for those interested in irregular binyanim, and an ayin vov word when it goes into the kal future looks like yamal, and the vov in front of it makes it into the past. You might have thought it is a passive, some form of nifal, and Rashi tells you it is not. So therefore, Vayamal et basar alatam means Abraham actually circumcised the flesh of their orla. And really, Rashi is telling us that um, in order to set us up for what he's going to say on the next pasuk, which is a another grammatical point. So pasuk Dalat says, but Abraham ben tishim v'teisha shana, Abraham was ninety-nine years, v'himolo basar alato. Behimalo. Now, what is the grammatical meaning of behimalo? So Rashi says behipaalu. Behipaalo. Sorry, it's a hifil, which means no. Sorry, it's a yes. It is a hifil, but it's got a passive meaning. Kamo behibraam. So Rashi compares it to behibaram when they were created, referring to heaven and earth. If you look there in Perak Bet Pasuk Dalat, it says about Shemaim Ba'aretz Behibara'am, which does not mean when Hashem created them, but it means when they were created. So Rashi saying Behimolo also has a passive meaning. So Avram was 99 years old when Basar Arlato was circumcised. So it's one of those Rashi's, I don't think there's a huge amount to say, but maybe there is but I think we can take it as a relatively straightforward grammatical point because it's a slightly irregular verb because it's, it, the, the root is mem vav lamad and the vav disappears. 
and therefore it takes on slightly odd grammatical constructions. Rashi has to tell us, but the Bayamal in Kaf Gimel is active, and the Himolo in Kaf Dalat is passive. So we can move on to Pasuk Kaf Hey, and Rashi, and then the Pasuk says, Yishmael Bano Ben Ben et Basar So the same word Bihimalo. Having in Pasuk Kaf Dalat, uh, we read that um, Abraham was 99. In Pasuk Kaf Hey, it says that Yishmael was 13. And Rashi's got nothing to say on that verse. So we'll go straight on to Kaf Hey. Sorry, that was Kaf Hey. I, I got that wrong. Rashi has got something to say on Kaf Hey, uh, on the words Bihimalo et Basar Aralato. So, which means we've said because it's a passive when the Basar of his Arla was circumcised. Now, we have a note in brackets, which means it's probably not authentic, which says, Natal Abraham Sakin. Sorry, am I getting confused? Is this on Cafe? I think in different editions, it might be on something else. Yes, on Kaf Dalet. So I'm using a different edition here, and it's got this comment on Cafe. What I'm reading now really is still the extension of Kaf Dalet. My, 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 well, I was confused by this safer, but if you're following it and it seems to be on Kaf Dalet, that's where it should be. Okay, so on the word Behimolowit Basar Lato, which Rashi says is passive, which means when the flesh of his orla was circumcised, then he brings another idea, uh, and this is in bracket, so it's probably not authentic Rashi. Natal Abraham Sakin. Abraham took the knife, the achaz ba'arlato, and took hold of his orla, and he wanted to cut. It, apparently it's not an easy matter to circumcise yourself, but that's what he was doing. But, he was afraid, that he was old. And I think that means that he couldn't necessarily hold the knife steady. What did Hashem do? Hashem, as it were, stretched forth his hand and held it with him, held the knife with him. That he, well, karot imo habrit means normally that he cut with him a covenant. So cut a covenant, as we learned with the Brit Benavatarim, is just a sort of idiomatic way of saying making a covenant. So we normally translate the karat imo brit, he, Hashem, made a covenant with Abraham. Whom do you make the covenant with? With someone else. That's why you say with. However, Rashi here says, you can also read it much more literally, that imo doesn't mean he made the covenant with him, but he joined with him in making the covenant. There was a partnership in the sense the two of them together did the making of the covenant. And here we'll use the word karat in its literal meaning to be cut. So he cut with him the covenant. Hashem cut the covenant, i.e. did the or did the, the mila with Abraham together because he held it with him. Is that why it's in the passive voice? Ah, very good. This is an alternative. So either you read it as in the passive, and although Rashi doesn't say explicitly, that's another thing which is perhaps corrupted about this text, that if it is Rashi, it's like a Dabar Acher, even though he doesn't say so. So in this way, it wouldn't be passive. It would be that he cut the orla, he and Hashem cut the orla, and it wouldn't be passive, it would be active. So let me just finish this uh, comment. The Karati Mohabrit, lo, lo ne'emar, ela imo, it doesn't say he cut to him the covenant, but he cut with him the covenant. 
So as I said, and I, I hope this is clear, normally if Reuben and Shimon make a pact together, make a covenant together, Reuben makes a pact with Shimon and the two of them are partners. But you can also read it as Reuben made a pact together with Shimon and Reuben and Shimon made the pact simultaneously. And I was Reuben, if you see, you know, it's very hard to say this because Reuben made the pact with Shimon can be understood in two ways. Naturally, we think they were two partners on either side of the covenant of the deal, but it could also mean that Shimon assisted Reuben when Reuben made the pact. So that's what Rashi is saying here. You can read the Karot Imo Brit as Hashem didn't make the pact as, a, as the uh, contractual partner of Abraham, but he made the pact as Abraham's assistant in the process of making the pact. And that's why he says, Lo, Lo Ne'emar, Ela Imo. It doesn't say he made it to him, which would be the contractual partner, but Imo as his aid in the process of the process of making the government. Okay, but that is two different ways of reading Bihimolo. So the simple pshat is Himolo is passive, but it can also be read as Hashem made it with him. Okay, end of brackets. And as I say, that uh, is probably not original Russian. Now we have another comment. Uh, and Rashi really spells out what the question is. So I'll let Rashi talk for himself. But Avraham, lo ne'emar et. By Avraham, it doesn't say et. What Rashi is doing is contrasting the Lashon of Kafdalad with Kafhe. Now, if you look at Kafdalad and Kafhe, they're very, very similar. Let's read them again. Kafdalad says, For Avraham ben Tishim basar aralato. Abraham was 99 when the basar alato, the flesh of his orla, was circumcised. Kafhe says, but Yishmael beno ben et basar So the last four words are identical to the last three words of Kafdalat. Well, when I say four and three, I'm making it uh, actually explicit, but they're not identical because there is the word et in Kafhe. Now, what does et mean? When I was a, a wee lad, we were always taught you can't translate et. Well, you can't because there isn't an equivalent in English. In Hebrew, it identifies the object. Uh, so the object of Behimolo is basar arloto. Perhaps it's not strictly the object because himolo is passive, as we said. But nevertheless, basar arloto is introduced by an et because it's an object. In which case, why is it not similarly introduced in kafdalot? Or to put it another way, the last three words of Kafdalat are exactly the same grammatical construction, exactly the same vocabulary as the last four words of Kafe, but why therefore is there a difference? So Rashi has to address um, what, what I hope is now a glaring difference between the two. Why is there no et in the case of Abraham, but there is et in the case of Yishmael? So Rashi has this to say to answer that question. I'll go back to the beginning. But Avraham lo ne'emar et. Lefi shalo haya chaser eila chituch basar. Because in the process of the circumcision, he was only lacking the cutting of the flesh. Shekavar nitme'ech alyedei tashmish. Because the organ had already become softened through sexual intercourse. Because Avraham was 99 years old, he was an adult, and over the course of his life, the organ had become softened. Alval Yishmael, Shahaya Yeled, but Yishmael, who was a child and had not engaged in sexual intercourse, whose cut lachtoch orla, it was necessary to cut the orla, velifroa hamila, and to pare back the circumcision. 
Now, um, I don't know all that much about Mila. I've done the mitzvah four times, but I got someone else to do it for me. But there is a crucial, uh, that's actually three parts to the process of Mila, and each one is ma'akev, each one is essential. There is the cutting, and the second one is the priya, which is the pairing back. And if that is not done, then the Mila is not um, sufficient. So Abraham says Rashi didn't have to do the pairing back, the priya, because at the age of 99, his organ was already softened and basically it happened by itself. However, with Yishmael, that wasn't the case and therefore the priya, the pairing back, was an essential part of the Mila. So it concludes, Rashi says, and that's why it says et by um, Yishmael. Now, there's, a, there's a, perhaps a deeper idea, so it's not very deep, but there's, there's, a, there's an underlying idea here that the word et, says Chazal many, many times, is always to include something. When they darshan, when they expound homiletically, in other words, in a non-pshat fashion, the word et, they don't say it's just an indicator of the object in the verb, which it is from a grammatical point of view, but they say it comes to include something. For instance, um, you shall love Hashem your God. What's the et? So it also includes Tamadech Chachamim. As well as showing respect to Hashem, you show respect to Tamadech Chachamim. Kabed et avicha ve'etimecha. What is the et adding when it says honor your parents? It means honor your older siblings as well. Um, so et comes to add things. So Rashi here says, by Ishmael we have an et. So we must be adding something that isn't there by Abraham. And what are we adding in the case of Yishmael? We're adding the Priya, which is the, as I say, the pairing back of the, of the removed Orla, which is part of the Mila process. So the question, why do we have the difference? Um, it can't just be that we don't need the Ed, because if we didn't need the Ed in Kavdala, then why do we need the Ed in Kavay? And conversely, obviously, if we need the Ed in Kavay for a grammatical reason, why don't we have the same Ed in Kavdala for the same grammatical reason? So Rashi, quoting the Medrash Rabbah, brings the answer that the et comes to include something by Yishmael that wasn't necessary in the case of Abraham. Now we move on to Pasuk Kavvav, which says, Be'etzem hayom hazeh, nimol Abraham v'yishmael b'no. On that very day, Abraham was circumcised and Yishmael his son. And Rashi says on the words, Be'etzem hayom hazeh. Rashi has a question why we need because we've already had that very phrase in Pasuk Kaf Gimel. At the end of Kaf Gimel, it said, um, Abraham circumcised himself on that very day. So why do we need to be told again in Kaf Bab it was on that very day? So Rashi answers that by saying, it was the day that Abraham fulfilled 99 years, and it was the day that Yishmael fulfilled 13 years. Nimol Abraham the Yishmael Bano. Quoting the words of the Pasuk, on that day, Abraham and Yishmael, his son, were circumcised. So according to Rashi, Kafvav is like the conclusion of Kafdalad and Kafhe. Kafdalad said Abraham was 99. Kafhei said Yishmael was 13. Kaf Vav comes to tell us, you know what? It was their birthday. It was exactly the day that Abraham was 99, and it was exactly the day that Yishmael was 13. So for Etzamayom in that case, which is quite different from what it meant in Kaf Gimel, 
listen to last week's share about that. It, here it means the very day that they became 99 and they became 13. By the way, um, there is a machloket in the Sechet Rosh Hashanah, which we learned in the Mizrahi Bet Midrash, about when the Avot were born. Were they born in Tishri or were they born in Nisan? Rashi here is quoting the opinion that they were born in Nisan. How do we know that? Because um, three days after this Mila, and we're going to learn this very soon, we're going to learn it tonight, the Malachim appeared to Abraham and told him that one year after that, Yitzchak would be born. Now we know that Yitzchak was born in Nisan. There's no, no discussion about that. There's no argument about that uh, between Rabbi Yishev and Rabbi Yezer in the Sechet Rosh Hashanah. So we know that Yitzchak was born in Nisan, which means one year before Yitzchak's birth was also Nisan, which means the day that the Malachim came to visit Abraham was Nisan. And Rashi here is telling us that Abraham has just celebrated his 99th birthday. So Rashi here is following the opinion that the Avot, all, all three of them, including Abraham, were born in Nisan. It's also worth pointing out what's the significance of 99. Well, before the Torah was given, we, we learned actually um, regarding the age of Noah's children at the time of the Mabul, that the time for liability um, before the Torah was given was aged 100. That's why Noah's children were, 100, were less than 100 before the flood, when the flood came. Uh, so we're told here that Abraham had not yet reached the age with, by which he would be responsible for failing to perform mitzvot because he wasn't yet 100. So by the time he reached 100, he could take off this mitzvah that he'd actually fulfilled. It's also the case that um, even though the age for liability is 100, the age for becoming a gadol, a, an adult, and under your own authority and outside your parents' authority was then as it is now 13. So if Yishmael was just entering his third, just enter his 13th birthday, so at the time of the Mila, he was still under Abraham's authority and he wasn't yet like out there in the world with his own reshut, uh, with his own authority. So Abraham made sure that this mitzvah was done to him also before he reached the age of uh, completing his 13th year. And the last passage on which there's no Rashi says, the Chol Anshei Veito Yalid Bayet Umiknat Kesev Me'eit Ben Nechar Nimolo Ito. And all Men, men of the house who were born in the house or were acquired by money from outside the family, from, from strangers, were circumcised with him. And that concludes the Brit Ben, sorry, the Brit Milah, and that concludes Parshat Lechotha. That is the third of the Sidrot that we have learned together. And now we commence the fourth. I'll pause if there are any questions or comments so far. Hi, Rav. Sorry, quickly. Um, why, why do we need Pasuk Kaf Zayin if in Pasuk Kaf Gimel it basically says the exact same thing? I know it's, the last one's a bit repetitive itself, as we've said, but Pasuk Kaf Zayin like, well, it seems completely the same as Kaf Gimel, really. I don't know. Uh, very good question. Um, you might suspect what I'm going to say as a sort of cop-out, that Rashi doesn't see it as a question, therefore we don't have to, um, which, which is fair enough, because this is the Rashi share. Um, but I noticed that you're right, Kaf Zayin does repeat Kaf Gimel, um, unless, I'm just sort of guessing here, it's a continuation of Be'etzem HaYomazet. So just like the Mila of Abraham and Yishmael was repeated in Kaf Vav to tell us it was Be'etzem HaYomazet, 
also all the rest of the household when they, their, when they had their mila, as mentioned in Kaf Gimel, you know when it was? It was Be'et HaMayomazeh. That's what we're being told in Kaf Vav and Kaf Zayin. I'm not 100% sure or convinced of what I've just said, but it could be a possibility. Thank you. Okay. Okay, we now move on to Parsha Vayera, and we come to the beginning of the Sedra, and the beginning of the Sedra is always very familiar. Why is that? Because in primary school, every single year, we learn the Sedra again, and we start at the beginning, we don't get much further. And that is one of my important about education, um, which I suppose I should take responsibility for, because um, But it seems to me that we always know the beginning of the Sedra much better than the middle or the end of the Sedra. So we certainly know the beginning of Vayera, because we're very familiar with the story of Abraham and the angels who came to see him. So let's see that story with Rashi. Let's, as, you, uh, as is our mission, try and our, try our best to really understand what Rashi is saying. So, Vayera, a love Hashem. Hashem appeared to him, Ve'elone Mamre, in the plains of Mamre, Ve'hu Yoshev Petach O'ehel Kachom Hayom. And he was sitting the entrance of his tent, Kachom Hayom, like the heat of the day. What does Rashi have to say? So on the first words, Vayera Elav, Levaker et ha To visit the sick, Hashem was doing Bikur Cholim. Omar Rabbi Chama, Rabbi Chama says, sorry, Barchanin, Rabbi Chama Barchanin says, Yom Shalishi Lemilato Hayah. It was the third day of his Mila, Uva HaKadosh Baruch Hu Sha'al Bishlomo. And Hashem came and asked how he was. How do we know that the third day of the Mila is the most painful? We know that from the story of Shechem, of the city of Shechem, that when Shimon and Levi told the people of Shechem that if their ruler, also called Shechem, wanted to marry Dina, their sister, they all had to circumcise themselves, and they all did. And then on the third day, Shimon and Levi went in, rode into town and killed them all. And we learn from that that the third day is the most critical after the Mila. So Rabbi Hamabar Hanina, says that this was the third day after Abraham's Brit, and it's not explicit in the Torah, Rashi needs to tell us that, and therefore Abraham was a choleh, and Hashem came to do Bikur Cholim, which is one of the things that when we're told uh, to emulate Hashem, Bikur Cholim is one of the things we learn from Hashem himself, and this is like he's doing the mitzvah of Bikur Cholim. Why does Rashi have to say this? Because Vayera Elav Hashem is very strange. Because Hashem appears to him, and what would we always expect after Hashem appearing? Anyone? What would we always expect? Hashem appeared and, and said something, and gave a message, and said to Abraham the following. But here, Hashem appears, and there is no message whatsoever. Now, we will see that three malachim appear, and they are, as it were, Hashem's representatives, and they're speaking on behalf of Hashem, and maybe that's indeed what Vayira Elav Hashem means as someone to say. But the simple, what we're reading here is, the simple idea of what we're reading here is Hashem was there, and nothing was told about it. So maybe there was a conversation, but it's not recorded in the Torah, because it's not important. All what we need to know is Hashem was there. So why was Hashem there? What was the purpose of this Vayira, this, this vision of Hashem? Answer, it was Bikur Cholim. Now, um, I came across something really beautiful uh, in, the, in a comment on Rashi that says the following. 
If you notice at the beginning of the comment of Rashi, it says, Levaker et hachole. Why did Hashem appear? Levaker et hachole. And then Rashi quotes Rabbi Chama Bar Hanina and says it was the third day after the Mila, and Hashem came, the Sha'al Bishlomo, and asked him about how he was, asked after his welfare, we might say. Why does Rashi change the Lashon, the expression? Now, Bikocholim, and asking how he is, we assume it's the same thing, and it is the same thing. But then why does Rashi use one phrase at the beginning and a different phrase at the end? So I saw a reference to the tour in uh, the beginning of the laws of Bikocholim, which is the tour Yoradea Shin Lamad Hay. And the Torah has a quite nice introduction to the mitzvah of Bikocholim. And by the way, it quotes our very Pasuk as the source. And then it says the following. It's a big mitzvah to visit someone. Because uh, through doing so, uh, the visitor will, implead, will plead with Hashem for mercy for the ill person. And it's as if the visitor, through the prayers, has brought him back to life. And also, because the visitor sees the sick person, he will uh, analyze his situation. If he needs anything, he will try to acquire it for him. And do, he'll uh, tidy up in front of him. So we see from that Lashon there in the tour, but there are two aspects to Bikocholim. One is to visit the sick person and daven for him. The, uh, the Chavetz Chaim, by the way, in Abad Chesed says that davening for this sick person is an integral part of Bikocholim. If you don't do the davening, then you haven't really done the Bikocholim. But says the tour, there's another aspect, and it's very clear from the way, way the tour puts it, but there are these two aspects. And the second one, is to see if the ill person needs anything. And if he or she does need something, then the visitor should try their best to get it and sort it out and deal with whatever needs to be dealt with. And those two aspects are beautifully summarized in the words here of Rashi. So says Rashi that Hashem came to visit the sick. That's the first part, just to be there. Obviously, Hashem doesn't need to pray, but uh, that's the equivalent of us just attending and hence davening. And then Rashi says, and to ask how he was, because that's the second part of Bikocholim. It's a separate, separate and independent part that requires the person, the visitor, to actually investigate the circumstances of the ill person and to see if the visitor can do things to uh, alleviate his situation and to fix things up around him. Then Rashi carries on and says, in the plains of Mamre. Now we know that Abraham had three mates um, and Mamre was one of them. Um, and we're told that this took place, Hashem appeared to him, Mamre, and Rashi's already said elsewhere, but that means the plains of Mamre. So it's the location belonging to Mamre. It says Rashi, Hu shenatan lo etza alamila. He is the one who gave him advice about the Mila. 
Lefiha, therefore, Nikla Allah Bechelko. Therefore, Hashem revealed uh, himself, uh, revealed to him in his portion. Hashem was revealed to Abraham in the portion belonging to Mamre. I think we talked about this before because Rashi has actually alluded to this before about why Mamre was called a Ben Brit. And the, one of the reasons was because Mamre gave him advice about the Brit Mila. And I'll just remind what, what, what can it mean that Abraham needed to take advice? So this is a question asked by the Mephoshim, that if Abraham, who does every mitzvah, uh, as soon as he's told, um, and passes 10 tests and 10 very difficult tests, why did he need to take advice about the Mila? So one answer is that, uh, we talked about this before, that the Mila is going to separate him from the rest of humanity. Abraham is going to be the one who is circumcised, and everyone else is going to be the one who's people who are not circumcised. It's going to make a, a division, uh, a, a separation. So in order to mitigate that, Abraham tries to get his mates who is not Jewish, who aren't going to be part of the Mila, but he tries to get them sort of involved in the process a little bit. So he asked them, you know, how should I do it? Uh, how exactly does the operation take place in order to involve them a bit? So another suggestion is quite the contrary. He asked them whether he should go ahead with the Mila, even though it's going to be quite consequential in terms of this separation, with the intention that they should say, no, don't do it. Why does Abraham want them to say, no, don't do it? In order to make the test harder, in order to make the Masirat Nefesh even greater when he goes ahead and does it. So it's a little bit of a stretch, in my opinion, but we have to somehow explain what the Midrash, as quoted by Rashi, means. What does it mean that Mamre gave him advice about the Mila? So according to this second idea that I just shared, so the others said, no, don't do it. And Mamre said, do do it. And that is why Mamre is praised and Mamre is honored by Hashem revealing himself for Elone Mamre. Then Rashi says on the word Yoshev, and he says, Yashav Ketiv. It's written chaser. It's written without the vav. So the word that's read as Yoshev is normally spelt Yud, Vav, Shin, Vet. But here it's Yud, Shin, Vet, which is normally read as Yashav. Now, it's not actually, from a grammatical point of view, the biggest problem in the world, because Yoshev can mean sitting or can mean was sitting in the sort of imperfect sense. There was an ongoing process of sitting. However, when it's read as Yashav, sorry, when it's written as Yoshav, it does sort of indicate it was in the past, and yet it's read as Yoshev, which is in the present, something's missing. Now, Rashi, it seems, is not really focusing on the tense situation, whether it's present or past. He's focusing on the fact that it's chaser. There's something lacking. It was an incomplete type of sitting. The missing vav means the sitting itself was somehow not comprehensive. Now, in what way was the sitting not comprehensive? So Rashi says, Bikeshla amot, he tried to stand. He wanted to stand. Amarlo HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem said to him, Shef, you sit, Ani Emod, and I will stand. So Rashi is bringing this idea to explain why the yeshiva, why the sitting was not complete sitting. It was sitting in attempt to stand, which is like not complete sitting. Abraham was like itching to get up, but Hashem said to him, you stand, sorry, you sit, and I will stand. Why did he say this, or, or what do we learn from this? Rashi continues to say, <coughs> 
the reason Hashem said, you sit and I will stand, he said, you will be a siman, a sign for your descendants. Sha'atid ani lehityatsev ba'adat adayanim. In the future, I, Hashem, am going to stand in the assembly of judges, the Hain Yoshvin, and they will sit. So at the moment, Abraham sitting, Hashem standing, says, says Hashem, this will be an archetype of an arrangement in the future when the Bet Din sits in judgment, and it literally sits. The Bet Din sits, and it's important that the, the Dayanim are sitting, and I, Hashem, will be standing when they are sitting, just like I'm standing now when you are sitting. Because we know about a uh, judges, and we learn this in Pirkei Avot and, and elsewhere, Shinema, the passage in Tehillim says, Elokim nitzav ba'adat el. Hashem stands in the company of el, el as in not kel, but el as in judges. Now, one might ask, what has one got to do with the other? So on a very simple level, what's the, what the, the connection that Rashi is drawing is that Hashem is standing and Abraham is sitting, just like when the judges sit, Hashem stands. But perhaps we can find something deeper than this. So I found two answers which are interesting. One is that um, the judges are judging according to the Torah, and the Torah and its judgment process is uniquely Jewish. As we said at the beginning of Mishpatim, Eila Mishpatim Asher you shall put these laws before them, before the Jews, and not before the non-Jews. So the process of the Bet Din, um, which is an interesting point here, we might think is just dealing with civil matters, just dealing with social matters and acting in the same way as any other sort of court or tribunal in any society would act. That's not correct. Even when they're judging oxen, goring other oxen and falling into holes and so on, they are applying the Torah, the uniquely Jewish Torah. And the, the assembly of judges in which Hashem stands when they're doing their judging is part of the distinction between our judges and non-Jewish judges following a non-Jewish legal system in whose company Hashem doesn't stand. What's Abraham doing at this moment with the Brit Milah? Abraham is separating himself from the non-Jewish world. He's making that distinction between the Jews and the non-Jews. We are the mulim, we are the ones who are circumcised, they are the ones who are not. Just like we are the ones who judge cases according to the laws of the Torah, and they do not. Now, another answer I saw, um, which I'm not sure I fully understand because it gets a bit uh, intricate, is we said when Hashem changed Abraham's name and added the letter Hey, Rashi there brought the idea that there were five parts of his body which previously he did not have control over, but now he did. Two eyes, two ears, and the male organ. Um, and they were uh, the, they were the uh, entranceway, if you like, of the eight Sahara, what the eyes see and what the ears hear and what the body wants. Um, that is what the eight Sahara tells Abraham to do. And he had to battle with the eight Sahara that came from those five parts of his body. After the Brit Milah, he was in total control because the Brit Milah conquered the eight Sahara. And from now on, those five organs don't uh, induce any eight Sahara in Abraham Avinu. That's the power of Brit Mila. That's what the, the level that Abraham reached, and that's why he had the letter Hey, which represents five, added to his name. To be a Dayan, one has to be in complete control of one's faculties, of one's emotions. 
One can't let one's instinct or, or one's emotions take any control over the thinking process of the Dayan. The Dayan has to be in total control of everything that he thinks about. Just like Abraham through the Brit Mila became in total control of everything he likes to think about. If I've understood it correctly, I'm not sure the connection is quite so strong, but that's uh, an answer given that I, I thought I would share. That the Dayan has to be in total control of himself in order to be a Dayan, and that's what Abraham became at the time of the Brit Mila. Continues Rashi. Uh, there's a lot to say on this one pasuk on the words petach ha'ohel. Lirot im yesh over v'shav to see if there are comers and goers v'yachnisem v'veto and to bring them into his house. So I think we can say, why does Rashi have to say this? Because why does the Torah tell us where Abraham was sitting? Um, it's not integral to what's about to happen. What's about to happen is these three people are going to appear and they're going to have some interaction with Abraham. So why do we need to be told Peta Hayo? Sorry, Peta Ha'ohel. And the answer is there's a significant reason why Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent. And the answer is so he can look out and see the comers and goers and invite them in. This, of course, is the chapter by which we learn about Abraham's Hachnasat Orchim, Abraham's hospitality. And so we see at the very beginning that Abraham is demonstrating his hospitality by sitting at the entrance to his tent. Then, when was he sitting there? Kachom Hayom. Rashi says, Otsi HaKadosh Baruch Hu Chama Mi Nartika. Hashem brought out the sun from its sheath. It's like uh, its, its uh, protective coat. Shalo Lahatricho Ba'orchim in order not to burden Abraham with guests. So Hashem made the sun very, very hot, so that people wouldn't be passing by on that particular day. And when Hashem saw, or because Hashem saw him, saw Abraham, that Abraham was troubled, that guests were not coming, he brought the angels to him, we'll talk about Allah later, in the appearance of men. So a couple of things to say. First of all, why does Rashi, where does Rashi get this idea that Hashem made it very, very hot? Chom um, Hayom is the heat of the day, presumably around midday or just after midday, which is the hottest time of the day. And we're told that Abraham was sitting in his tent at the heat of the day. So I think the answer might be the letter if the Torah were telling us that Abraham was just sitting there in the heat of the day, then we would expect What is like the heat of the day? So someone to say it's like the day which is known to be very, very, very hot. The apocalyptic vision of the heat at the end of days when everything gets very, very hot. It was like what we know elsewhere to be the ultimate extreme heat of the day. And from there, Rashi learns that it wasn't just a normal heat. It was a unnatural heat. And why was it unnatural heat? Because Hashem had taken the sun out of its nartika. Uh, and why had Hashem done that? In order to dissuade people from coming, etc. And then he saw that uh, that's not what Abraham wanted. So, Kacham Hayom, rather than Bokham Hayom, 
means an exceptional heat. And finally, what does Rashi mean? He brought angels by him in the appearance of men. So the answer, I think, is something's got to happen at this point. The angels have got to come and see Abraham and tell him that Yitzchak's going to be born, and tell him and Sarah that Yitzchak's going to be born. That is really the main thing that's going to happen. And that Hashem planned to happen. But because Abraham wanted guests, Hashem didn't send Malachim looking like Malachim, who don't need hospitality. He sent them the Demut Anashim, the appearance of men. So Abraham could then fulfill the mitzvah of Haknasat Orachim with these men-like people, or men-like angels. So if you read Rashi, Rashi's not saying, oh, because it was Hashem, Abraham wanted guests, so he brought Malachim looking like, like people. He brought Malachim, and by the way, what were these Malachim looking like? They were looking like people. No, that's not what Rashi is saying. Because Abraham wanted guests, Hashem brought the Malachim, the Malachim he was always going to bring, but you know how he brought them? The Demut and Hashem. He brought them looking like people. That was the point. That was how he responded. That was how he responded to Abraham's need for guests, by bringing the Malachim, the Demut and Hashem. That's what Rashi means by that last phrase. Right, let's see what time is. Yep. So the next Pasuk says, Pasuk Pasuk Bet, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the Hinei Shlosha Anashim. There were three men, Mitzavim Alav, standing, we'll translate Alav in the moment, by him, Rashi's got something to say. And he saw, and he ran towards them, from the entrance of the tent, and he bowed to the ground. Now, Rashi's got a lot to say on this, so I don't think we're going to finish Pasuk Bet tonight, but we will carry on next week. So we start with the Hine Shalosha Anashim. There were three men. Echad Levaser et Sarah, one to announce the good news to Sarah, the Echad Lahafok et Saddam, and one to overturn Saddam. And one to heal Abraham. Rashi's telling you why there were three. You need, there must be a reason why there's three. The Torah stresses there were three. So the answer is they each had a job to do. And here comes the key point. And one angel cannot do two missions. So since there were three missions, and since one angel could not do two missions, therefore there must have been three angels. Um, the Maharal explains this idea. Why can one angel only do one job? And the answer is because, and Russia uses the word, and it's crucial, why each angel has his shlichut. He is sent for a particular purpose. But the Maharal explains further. What is an angel? An angel is an emissary of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the angel and the purpose for which they are sent are the same thing. You have to understand one is identified with the other. So if an angel is sent to heal Abraham, then that angel is the healing of Abraham. And therefore, since it is the healing of Abraham, it cannot be another shlichut as well. If you thought of angels as just like secretaries, then a good secretary can easily multitask 
do more than one job. But that's not what an angel is. An angel is the embodiment of the mission. So each mission can only have one embodiment. Or to put it the other way around, one embodiment can only have one mission. Next thing I want to observe is that the first angel listed gives the news to Sarah, and we know the angel announced to Sarah that she was going to have a child. The second angel comes to um, invert Saddam, to overthrow Saddam. And we know later on, the angel says, I'm overthrowing Saddam. The third angel, says Rashi, was there to heal Abraham. But we do not see any healing of Abraham explicitly. We don't see one of these three men who were really angels say, listen, Abraham, let me give you a quick check over. I'm a doctor. I'm going to heal you. We don't see that at all. We don't see any action on behalf of these Malachim, or the, the, the one in particular who's there to heal Abraham, who actually does anything. What happens in this chapter? What happens to Abraham? You know what happens to Abraham? He performs the mitzvah of Hachnasat Orchid. And the third angel is there to give him the opportunity to do that. And so we can say, it's the very act of performing the mitzvah, the mitzvah of Chesed, which heals Abraham. It's a very beautiful idea. That how is Abraham healed? By the opportunity to perform the mitzvah. So the third angel doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything, but he's there. He's there in order to increase the opportunity for Abraham to do the mitzvah. And that's his role. And that's how Abraham is healed. Now, how do we know from the text that one angel can only do one job? So continues Rashi. Teidalacha, you should know this. Shekain kol ha-parsha hu mazkirin baloshan rabin. That throughout the parsha, they are mentioned in the plural. That's these three men. We see, vayochlu, they ate. That's in Pasachet. Vayomru elav, they said to him. That's in Pasachet. However, uvavasura ne'emar, when it comes to give the news, i.e. the news of the birth of Yitzchak, Vayomer shuv ashuv elecha. He said, I will surely return to you at this time and you will have a child. So suddenly, even though they are eating together and they are talking together, when it comes to doing the job, it's only one of them. So it's only one angel that does the particular job from which we also learn, it's a, by a little bit of extrapolation, that only one angel can do one job. Um, but we have another example uh, that's showing that the um, de deliverer of the news of the impending birth was a singular, was one angel alone. Saddam, and the over with the overthrow of Saddam, who Amer, we also find when the angel said to Lot, "You better hurry away." You, Lot, want to go to the place called Soar. Okay, you can go there, but I can't do anything until you have gone there. And in particular, I can't until you... I'm not able to overthrow the city, showing again that it's one angel who's in charge of overthrowing. Then Rashi says, Uraphael shall repair at Abraham. So the angel that heals Abraham gets a name, Raphael, who is always associated with healing, hence the name Raphael. Holach Misham Lahatzil et Lot. 
he went from there to save Lot. Uh, and that's where it says, when it was when they uh, brought them out, when they brought out Lot and his family out of Saddam. By Yomer, he said, Save yourself. One angel says to Lot, Save yourself. This teaches you that one was the saving, savior, only one of them. There is an obvious question here, uh, and uh, it's just remarkable. It hits everyone in the face um, when they read this section. Rashi has said at great length and proved the point that it's like a, a trade union mantra, one angel, one job, only one angel, one job. And then Rashi says, cool as a cucumber. Oh, and one of the angels went to do a second job. He'd done the one job of healing Abraham, and then he pops off to do another job of saving Lot. You see the question? I hope you see the question. So Rashi obviously sees the question as well, and therefore there must be an obvious answer. And the answer seems to be that the job of the third angel was not exclusively to heal Abraham, but was to heal or to save. And therefore saving Abraham was the same as saving um, Lot. It was the same task. So we see that the three angels, one to inform Sarah, one to overthrow Saddam, and one to do the saving. Saving of Abraham, saving of Lot. Same action, same shlichut, uh, same mission, same um, angel. I think it's worth sharing a, a, uh, an idea that I heard years and years ago in the name of the Gra. I haven't seen it inside, but it's, I, I believe, I'm not doubting, but it comes from the Gra, and it's very much the Gra's style. And he says like this, um, what's going to happen very soon after the three angels have arrived is that the angels are going to ask, where is Sarah? And the answer is going to be, she's in the tent, from which we learn the Indian of Sniut, that the woman's role is not to come out and be with the men and in the entertaining, but to stand back when the men come to uh, have their food. From that, we then learn that when the Bnei Israel passed through the land of Moab, or passed by the land of Moab, we wouldn't have expected the women to come out and greet them with bread and water. And therefore, we do not castigate the Moabite women for failing to come out with the bread and water. Let me just go through this again, because it's quite complex. Stage one, after the three Malachim have arrived at Abraham's tent, they learn the principle of Sniut, that Sarah is in the tent, and they learn from there that Sarah is not expected to come out and join in the hospitality of the men. Therefore, we learn that when the people of Moab didn't show hospitality to the Jews when they were passing by, we blame the men because they should have done. We don't blame the women because they didn't, they shouldn't have done. So therefore they're not at fault. Therefore, we don't accept converts from the tribe of Moab as a punishment for their lack of hospitality, but we don't apply that to Moabite women because they're not guilty of a lack of hospitality because they didn't have to do the hospitality in the first place because of the principle of Sniut as learned from Sarah. Given that the Moabite women can marry into the Jewish nation after they convert, then Rut, who is a Moabite, 
we can in the future look forward to her marrying Boaz and producing uh, her great-grandson David and ultimately Mashiach. And therefore, it is worth saving the nation of Moab for the sake of Rut, who in the future is going to marry into the Jewish people. And therefore, after the free Malachim have arrived at Abraham's tent, they learn that it's worth saving Lot, who is the father of Moab, who is the ancestor of Rut, who can now marry into the Jewish people. So only after they have been in Abraham's tent and heard that Sarah is not coming out, but she's staying in the tent, do they then have a reason for saving Lot? Clever, huh? I think that's clever. Um, okay, let's see what Rashi says. Uh, how are we doing for time? Yep, just one bit more. Okay, nitzavim alav. Rashi says nitzavim alav means lafanav. Now the problem is the word alav normally means on top of him. Now, incidentally, there is a place in the Chumash, <coughs> and Rashi quotes this from time to time, where alav means next to. Um, in, uh, when it describes the arrangement of the tribes around the Mishkan, it says after naming the first tribe, I think it's Ephraim, and then it says, Alav Matem and Asher. And Alav, literally on him, was the tribe of Manasseh. But it doesn't mean on him, it means next to him. So in many cases, the word Alav does mean next to. However, it literally means on top of. So why does it say the angels were on top of Abraham, which obviously they weren't literally on top of him. So as Rashi says, it means Lafanav, it means they were in front of him. But if it means they were in front of him, why doesn't it say they were in front of him? Why doesn't it say, why doesn't it say Lafanav? Why does it use the word Alav? And the answer is, Lashan Nikia Hu Kalape HaMalachim. It's a polite expression with reference to the Malachim. Now, by the way, I noticed I'm using a text, which I wasn't the one I was preparing for. And this one has got in brackets, but alav matem and uh, I don't know if you, any of you have got in brackets, the alav matem and which shows that alav can mean next to. That shouldn't be there because the whole point of this Rashi is alav does not normally mean next to, but it's a special case in this case where it means next to, but it's used the word alav, which means on top of, or better still, at a higher level, because that's a nice way to refer to the malachim. Because the malachim, even though they don't exist in space per se, but if they did, we would imagine them as upwards, like heavenly. So whereas the angels come to Abraham, they come down to Abraham, and they come alav onto him. I think I'll just give a little spoiler for next week, um, because we do see that Abraham he ran towards them, which means they weren't actually next to him, which is why Rashi doesn't do here what he does from time to time, which quotes the story about Man the tribe of Manasseh being Allah, being next to its neighboring tribe, because here they weren't literally next to him. So, I said a moment ago, and I hope I wasn't too confusing, that sometimes Allah just means next to. But Rashi doesn't use that here. And if you've got that text in brackets, it shouldn't be there. Rashi doesn't use that here. And perhaps the reason for that is when we see further on, he ran towards them. It means they weren't next to him. So what does Allah mean? So Rashi starts by saying it means in front of him. But then why does he use the word Allah? 
says Rashi, that is a lashon nekia hu It's a polite expression, literally a clean expression, a respectful expression regarding malachim. Because when malachim come to visit somebody, they come down from above, and therefore they are literally on top of him, which is what the word alav literally means. And that's why it's a polite expression regarding the malachim. But the first word that Rashi says is what does it actually mean in our context? It actually means lafanav in front of him. And we will stop there. And now I'll invite any comments or questions. And there aren't any. Can I ask a question? Yes, yes please. Um, so the Peshat doesn't mention anything about them being Malachim, just about Anashim. Correct. So where does Rashi get the idea from that they're Malachim? Okay. Well, the simple answer to that is when two of them go off, uh, they leave Abraham and they go off to Saddam. And if you look in Perakutet, Pasuk Aleph, when they arrive, you got there? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the same people are explicitly called Malachim. So that's quite an easy answer to your question. And Rashi actually talks about why they appear to Abraham as Anashim and they appear to Lot. Same people, same, same beings. They appear to Lot as Malachim. So mm-hmm. I think even without the Midrash, which obviously is, is, is Rashi's source, or, or if you like, the Midrash is um, perhaps explaining this very passage as quite a clear uh, evidence that they really were Malachim when they got to Saddam. So the question is, why were they called Anashem in Abraham's presence? Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? And it's quite normal. Like, is, the, is that like a way of chat to like zone in on someone's like point of view and like call things by how a certain like person would see it? Um, I'm hesitating because I can't think of many other examples that I know of. Um, but in this case, basically, yes. Uh, and we will come across Rashi who explains why they appeared to Abraham as Anashim. And, and, and therefore, mm-hmm. you're right. You're okay. right. The Torah calls them Anashim precisely because they appeared to Abraham as Anashim. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you very much. We will meet again next week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi. Thanks, Rob.